good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Exodus chapter really 12 and 13 is where we're going to be today. Working through last week's Passover meal and thinking about the Passover lamb, it is somewhat obvious as we look into Exodus 12 and 13 that there are three points of remembrance uh, that are are given immediately following the deliverance of the people from, from Egypt. And those three are the Passover meal, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the consecration of the firstborn. These are three major means by which the people of Israel will remember the deliverance that has been brought to them by the Lord. And what I'd like to do today is as we progress through the narrative of the, of the actual Exodus, is where we, have, where we have arrived today, is that we must understand that each and every single one of these remembrances are actually anchored in the fact that God has delivered through the Passover lamb being slain. If we miss this key piece, then we're not going to understand, especially when, as we make our way to the New Testament, we're not going to understand in full the beauty of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and really how it can't conveys and then translates into the New Covenant. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to walk through the anchor point, if you will, of the deliverance of the people of Israel, and in particularly, the fact that they were driven out at such a pace that they were not permitted to let their bread leaven and rise. And then as they are making their way to the Red Sea, they are continuing to eat unleavened bread. They're cooking this unleavened bread. And so what I'd like to do really is to anchor our time this morning in the actual events of the Exodus. We've looked at the Passover and really as we looked at it last week, we're looking at the event of the Passover from the perspective of the Israelites in which God provided a sacrificial lamb for which they are to continue that feast throughout the remainder of Israel's days. And then we're going to look at it this morning from the perspective of the Egyptians first and foremost, awaking and finding their children dead and the response that the Egyptians will have, namely to drive out the people of Israel. And then in conclusion, we'll look at how the Israelites are to meditate upon the reality that God has delivered them not only from his own wrath as seen demonstrated in the Passover, but as he has delivered them from slavery in Egypt, which very clearly lays out to us the concept of being delivered from slavery to sin. And so with that, would you please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 12, we'll begin at verse 29 and make our way through chapter 13, verse 10. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 29, says this, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in the cloaks on their shoulders. 
The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up from them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened bread, cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leaven, because they were thrust out of Egypt, and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land so that the same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigners shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take in any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. And the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast is mine. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, where he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen, seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. And you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt." You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come largely awed by the effect of the lamb slain. Lord, that through this lamb slain, there has been deliverance from the people for the people of Israel. But Father, your glorious watchful eye being upon them you have brought to fruition all the promises that you gave to Abraham. Lord, thousands of years, hundreds of years prior, you have made this clear. And Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to stand awestruck at the glories of being delivered. Father, we look at this narrative and we imagine a harsh and bitter slavery for the people of Israel as they were enslaved in Egypt. But Father, would you help us to taste and taste clearly the bitterness of slavery of sin, that far greater deliverance, that far greater exodus that you have given to us. And so Father, I pray this day, would you help us to see and to behold the feast that you have laid out as a memorial to be remembered. But at the very same time, Lord, would you help us to live in light of the wonderful deliverance that you have provided for your people. It's the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray, amen. 
So like I said, what I'd like to do is I'd like to walk through the movements of the Exodus. It really, we have arrived as we have made our way through the book of Exodus. We've gone through the plagues. We've seen the calling of Moses. And now we are actually beginning the journey, if you will, to the promised land. As we are entering into the actual narrative of the Exodus, there are three major movements that you'll find in the text that we read this morning. And the first is this, Passover has actually come. If you look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 29 through 32, you will notice that all the promises of God are actually coming to fruition, a grand demonstration of God's faithfulness, most certainly to Israel, but at the very same time, a demonstration of God's faithfulness to the very clear word of the Lord that came to Egypt, that he was actually going to bring to fruition all that he said, namely, that the firstborn would perish. Movement number one is this, Passover has come. There isn't a single house in all of Egypt where someone isn't dead. Exodus 12, 30 is rather explicit in this. It says, and Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. God has actually gone through the land of Egypt and he has executed judgment as we go back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, that he has executed judgment on the Egyptians and simultaneously executed judgment on all of the false gods of Egypt. It is rather interesting to me that as you walk through the narrative that these individuals, these Egyptians would have been calling out to their pagan gods throughout the entirety of the plagues. And in this very final account, it is made most clear that the false gods of Egypt are not going to come and to rescue you from the true and living God of Israel. I'm convinced one of the grandest proclamations of God's judgment on the false gods of Egypt is the reality that as their people, as these Egyptians, Egyptian people who have served these false gods for likely centuries, as they call out and cry out to those gods, they are left with no answer. It mimics quite clearly the, the, the very clear picture that we find with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They cry out, they call to their false god, and he does not come. And it is a rather unique and startling contrast when you consider the fact that the introduction to the book of Exodus is the reality that the living God heard the cries of his people, that he is demonstrating that he is the authoritative and not only authoritative and transcendent God, but he is the imminent God. And as he is imminent to his people to rescue and to deliver, he cast judgment on all the false gods of Egypt and on the Egyptians in and of themselves. And so you see that the promises of God have come to pass. The Passover, as we have already observed in the land of Israel, is one of quiet and peace and rest, certainly preparation, but knowing that the blood of the lamb would actually rescue them and protect them from the wrath of God that was coming upon the entirety of the land. But as you enter into the land of Egypt, what you hear are the wails of those who would lay hold of their dead children. Exodus 12, 30 very clearly says, and there was a great cry in Egypt. We have spoken of this cry a multitude of times, but brothers and sisters, we must understand that this cry is not just wrought by the wrath of God. This cry is the lasting fruit of sin, trespass, and iniquity. That what we are examining in the midst of this is the fruit of a pagan mindset, one who refuses to bow the knee to the living and the true God. Every single one of these will find themselves in a disposition of wailing because they have experienced the just wrath of God coming upon them. It is so easy for us to detach the concept of the Passover from the fact that every single individual in Egypt were sinners who were in rebellion against the holy God. And so God demonstrates his justice and his wrath as he makes his way through. And he is kind enough, brothers and sisters, to not kill everyone in the house. 
And so we see this Passover laid out. The people are struck, and in the midst of the people being struck, all we have as Christians is to recognize this, that God has been faithful. God has been perfectly faithful, not only to the promises that were given to Abraham, but to the promises that were given to Isaac and to Jacob, and then Moses, and simultaneously, the promises that were given to Pharaoh himself. We go back to Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 through 23, and it says this, then you shall say to Pharaoh, that is to say, after all of the signs and wonders that have been accomplished in the land of Egypt, then you will look at Pharaoh and you will tell him, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Exodus eleven four through six is where Moses actually does this. It says about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. Brothers and sisters, the Passover is a grand proclamation that God is faithful to save and that God is faithful to judge. It is a loud proclamation of this. Now, one of the things that is most interesting in the midst of this is it is in this demonstration of God's wrath. Hear me, a demonstration of God's judgment that we see him demonstrate great mercy. And the reason I say that is because as we're looking at the judgment of God over in Egypt, you're considering the wrath that has been demonstrated there. But brothers and sisters, let us not forget that it is the execution of this wrath that will drive the people of Israel out of the land of slavery. The reason they make their way out is because God is faithful and just to execute judgment upon sinners. He makes it known that he is the true and living God, that he is the judge of all the earth and that he will do what is right. And in the midst of this judgment, it becomes the very thing that turns that hands of the Egyptians from driving the people in slavery to driving them out of slavery. In Exodus 12, 31 through 32, the promise that Moses laid out earlier that day, he says, then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord. As you have said, take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. Earlier this day, Moses looked at him and said, I'm not leaving until your people come and bow before me. There's, a way, there's two ways that we can see this word summoned. It either means that, that Pharaoh actually went and got Moses and Aaron and summoned him back to his chambers. I'm convinced it is actually a different rendering that essentially Moses sends a message to, uh, um, forgive me, uh, Pharaoh sends a message to Moses and Aaron and tells them, it is time for you to go. And interestingly enough, at the conclusion of this, Pharaoh says, bless me also. A phrase that we will find earlier in the book of Genesis where, the, where Joseph blesses the Egyptian Pharaoh at the time. In this particular circumstance, it is meant to connect the two, even as we we will see Joseph's bones enter in in the, pre, in the next chapter. This very clear statement is an indication of Pharaoh's truly releasing the grasp upon the, Egyptian, the Israelites, even for this brief moment. We know for sure that it is not a true repentance, for we will see him pursue the Israelites in a bit, in a bit of time. But what we find here is that the wrath of God has come upon the Egyptians. And in the midst of this, God is bringing to fruition his promises to deliver the people of Israel out of slavery and in particularly out of slavery in Egypt and drive them out into the promised land. Now that leads to the conclusion of this, which is as Pharaoh essentially gives freedom, essentially says, you can then make your way out, you must leave, the Egyptian people then begin to drive the Israelites out. If you look really specifically at verse 33, you'll notice this, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. And listen to what they said, for they said, we shall all 
be dead. Brothers and sisters, when we read this phrase, it is so easy for us to consider that the Egyptians are somehow just sitting on the streets encouraging the people of Israel to leave. Hear me, if you believe that if the Israelites stay for another day, the rest of your household may be dead, how urgently would you be driving them out? The idea here is not that they're sitting on the sidelines. The idea is that the Egyptians are doing everything in their power to rush, to launch the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt because they are trembling in their boots. They have seen the wrath of God displayed through the plagues, most certainly, but most recently they have seen the wrath of God displayed in the fact that every single house had a dead individual in it, that God's wrath has come and they knew that the true and living God simply could take the breath from someone's nostril by his mere word. And so what do they do? They begin to drive them out. The Egyptians fear the true and the living God and urgently send them out. They recognize that all of their false gods are powerless before the true and living God of Israel. And this urgency, as we'll see, this urgency caused the people to take their dough before it was able to rise. Exodus 12, 34. And listen, brothers and sisters, Exodus 12, 34, and even the concept of the unleavened bread is a rather unique concept because if we were writing this story in and of ourselves, we would probably not record the concept that they forgot that the bread was not leavened yet. There's intention here is what I'm really trying to draw our attention to. God does not waste his words. The concept that he is identifying this unleavened bread clearly notes that it's going to develop into something and we will see it develop throughout the Old Testament and all the way into the New where Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul will speak of it. But when we speak of this, we recognize Exodus 12, 34. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. They moved quickly as it were. They grabbed what they could and they made their way out. And not only did they make their way out, at the very same time of the Egyptians driving them out, the Israelites were being faithful to what God and Moses had commanded them to do. Exodus 12, 35 through 36. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked thus they plundered the Egyptians. As we make our way into the actual Exodus account, it is so important for us to notice that the hands that once kept them there are now pushing them out. There's not permission to stay if you're an Israelite in this particular circumstance. There's an understanding that it is your God who has brought this these plagues and ultimately the death of the firstborn upon us. And thus they say, we fear your God, thus you cannot stay. And that hand that once kept them begins to drive them out. And then we see the fruitfulness that really took place in the land of Egypt for the Israelites. If you look at movement three, which really begins in verse 37, it says this, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot. Now, brothers and sisters, if we pay close attention to the narrative, we understand that there were not 600,000 men who entered into the land of Egypt at the beginning of this narrative. Instead, we recognize that it is a singular family that made their way into the land of Egypt. And in the midst of that time, going back to Exodus chapter one, we see a demonstration and perhaps even a clear numerical value put upon the fact that as the Egyptians put harsher and harsher slavery and caused them deeper and deeper suffering as they were in the land of Egypt, God 
God continually blessed them and caused them to be fruitful and multiply in the land. We see this grand demonstration because as we're looking at this deliverance, we are speaking of 600,000 men departing from Israel on foot. That is not taking into account the women and the children. Now, should we do an examination of this? Everyone has thrown out a multiplicity of numbers, but I think it's rather safe to say that it would be well over 2 million people who would make their way out of the land of Egypt. It is an incredibly astronomical number, not even just taking into account the number, but the time to produce this great nation. God essentially placed his people inside of a kiln and caused them to flourish so that when he brought them out, he would bring out a great host of people. And so we understand that there was a multitude of people, 600,000 plus, that are making their way out, and not only just the men, but the women and children also. But then we recognize that not only the men, the women, the children, and the livestock will leave, but a mixed multitude leaves with them. Exodus 12, 38 says this, a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. If you were to go back through the, through the exchanges of Pharaoh and Moses, you would notice that that bargaining that took place always excluded something. You know, it would exclude the, the, the women and the children. They would not be permitted to go. But here what we have is a clear record that they would make their way out. And then the livestock are not permitted to go. But brothers and sisters, the livestock are recorded here as making their way out. The one that is unique, the one that I find to be uniquely blessed is the fact that not only do the women and the children and the livestock make their way out, but we have a bit of an additive here that a mixed multitude makes their way out, that is to say that there would have been Egyptians uh, that would be a part of this, that God's demonstration of his wrath, as we have spoken of previously, does indeed woo. And if you pay close attention to the, the, the latter books of Moses, you will notice that there are people there that are from Egyptian descent, that God actually, in the midst of demonstrating his wrath and his fury, would have had Egyptians make their way out with the Israelites. That is to say that there would have been Egyptians who woke up that morning with a firstborn dead that would have professed, he is God. And they would have made their way out and been brought into a better land. So a mixed multitude makes their way out. And then the Israelites, as it says in Exodus 12, 39, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out, for, brought out from Egypt. For it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. That is to say that as they're making their way, as we're in the in-between of being driven out from Egypt and before we're crossing the Red Sea, that there were no provisions made by the Israelites. That is, that they did not have time to make provisions for their journey. Now, if you could take this into account for just a minute, two million people plus are making their way, they're traveling, and they have made no provisions for, for any food, for any water. Tell me, is that not a death sentence? Imagine how quickly infighting would occur. And what we'll find is even this brief note reminds us that their eating of this unleavened bread will really launch us into a unique provision of manna in the wilderness. It is immediately following their crossing of the Red Sea into the wilderness that God begins to provide for them bread and water from the rock. Grand proclamations that they need no provision. God is their provision. And as God is their provision, they actually will be provided for. It is actually no surprise that God would launch them out in such a way as to say, you will make no provisions. You will bring no leaven from this land. I will ultimately be your provision in the wilderness. And then we need to ask the question as we're making our way through this narrative, what is the conclusion? And there's a brief summary, if you will, in verses 40 through 42. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years 
At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Now, the question is, why is this deliverance so important? Brothers and sisters, we've, we've recorded the concept that the Passover lamb was slain. But the promise of God was not that simply a Passover lamb would be slain, but they would really be delivered from slavery. And what you have in this rather simple and really succinct, it is, it is interesting to me that as we have made our way throughout the entirety of this book, 12 chapters, that the Exodus is rather a small account. But the narrative here of them making their way out of the land of Egypt is not a significant portion. It is not given much words, if you will. But the simple point is this, God has been faithful. That all of the promises that he made, even going back, brothers and sisters, to the Old Testament, we recognize that God's faithfulness to Abraham is being brought to fruition. Listen to Genesis 15, 13 through 14. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. This has been the culmination of the promises of God going all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. What we are seeing and beholding in this brief account is perhaps the greatest demonstration of God's faithfulness saving the cross of Christ. He has promised all of these things and promised them in ways that simply cannot come to fruition unless the one who is promised is divine and is sovereign and is supreme. And so what we are watching unfold in this brief narrative of them making their way out is the culmination of the promises of God being brought to fruition in this brief passage. Now, this summation is a rather important one because I think it's fair for us to say, how can something so absurd come to pass? Because hear me, going back to earlier in Exodus, we will notice that Moses at one point tried to deliver by the sword. It is rather interesting to me, saints, that the people, two million plus people, did not take up arms against another nation. Instead, what did they do? They waited upon the Lord's deliverance. They did not take up arms. They did not wage war. Instead, there was a dependence upon the living God to ultimately bring deliverance. And I am convinced that should they have taken up arms, they would have been found wanting because God was not with them. But here, dependence upon the Almighty, it is He alone is the reason that they would ultimately be delivered. Exodus 12, 42, I think records, records this for us. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That phrase, watching, we have already seen that the Lord hears the cries of His people. Why do we have such a unique phrase of watching in this particular night? Because it is making known that the reason the Israelites are going to make their way out of Egypt is because God is the one who is presently delivering. It is not just that the Egyptians are driving them out. It's not just that the Israelites are making their way. It's that God himself is being the deliverer. God is the one who is driving them out. And then there is this simple phrase that is an important note that we find in Exodus 12, 41. It says this, at the end of 430 years and on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. We have lost the meaning of the word hosts. The word host means army. 
And as you're considering this and as you're thinking about this deliverance, they are making their way to Canaan in which it has already been made known that they will be the means by which God executes judgment upon the Canaanites. God has expressed patience even going back and thinking of the statement where he says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. He is delivering not only his people from slavery to sin and slavery to Egypt, but he is also raising up the very army by which he will conquer Canaan. And so we have this laid out really as a forerunner or as a simple harbinger of the things to come. But then we have this parallel that God was the one who watched and delivered. And then you have this phrase in verse 42. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generation. So what does it mean that this night is a night of watching? which really does launch us into the actual Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because the question is, how did they watch? The statement's not that they're watching over God so as to be a protective agent. He needs no protection from us. Instead, it is a concept of meditation and remembrance upon the deliverance that God actually brought to the people of Israel. And there are three ways that we see laid out in this text, really going from chapter 11 all the way to chapter 13. The first is the Passover meal. As we consider this, it is the Passover meal, the lamb that would be slain, that they would use as a point of remembrance, of considering the fact that God rescued them and caused the Lord to pass over them because of the blood of the lamb. Secondly, it is the feast of unleavened bread, which we'll examine this morning. And then thirdly, it is the consecration of the firstborn. This is the means by which they continue to watch and to meditate upon all that God accomplished as he delivered them from the land of Egypt, which leads us into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we will spend the majority of our time. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, how should we think about this and how should we understand it? The very first thing we must do is understand actually what took place. And I'll tell you, the vast majority of us think of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the only thing that comes to mind is the fact that there was no leaven there. But brothers and sisters, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a full week, and it was a full week of celebration. When we consider this, it is often divorced. Celebration is not a portion of our consideration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but I am convinced, brothers and sisters, that it is the centerpiece. So let's consider for a moment the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread has a precursor. The precursor, that is to say, before anyone is delivered from slavery in Egypt, a Passover lamb must be slain. There is no freedom from Egypt. There is no freedom from slavery apart from a lamb being slain. This is the moment by which they begin to eat unleavened bread with the other elements of the Passover meal. And from this point forward, there is no leaven in their house up until the final day of the feast. The sacrificial lamb must be slain at twilight on the 14th day. And then, and only then, does the feast of unleavened bread begin, particularly on the 15th. Now the feast historic anchor point, why is it that they do this? How do we think about it? And where does it find its anchor in the actual narrative? Is this Exodus 12, 34. So the people took their dough before it was leavened. Exodus 12, 39. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened. Its anchor point is in the historical narrative. The very same way that the Passover meal's anchor point is in the historical narrative. The very same way that the consecration of the firstborn is anchored in the historical narrative. So then, what is the feast prescription? The feast prescription is this. The first day is a day of purging all the leaven and a day of holy assembly. That is to say that every individual would cleanse the leaven from their home and then there would be a day in which they gathered together and that there would be a holy assembly of worshiping the Lord. So Exodus 2, 12, 15 is where we see this. On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your houses. Every single bit of it must be removed. 
Exodus 12, 16, on the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And so there is responsibility for each and every household to cleanse all the leaven from their home. And then at the conclusion of this, they would gather together and they would worship the Lord for all that he has accomplished for them. Going forward, no leaven shall exist and no work shall be done in all the camps of Israel. As you're considering this feast, we must recognize that leaven would be removed, but there would also be a prohibition against work. But hear me when I say a prohibition against work. This means that God commanded them to rest. Whenever we hear the phrase or the terminology that God has prohibited work, we forget that his intended purpose is to grant his people rest. And for some reason, we always think of this as a net negative. Brothers and sisters, I am never upset about taking a week off. When God grants his people rest, he is doing it as a demonstration of his benevolence and his kindness. If anyone had right to demand that they labor each and every day without a single break, it is the true and living God. Why is it that from the very beginning of creation, he gives a day in which people should rest? Or then, even as you're looking at the laws of Moses, there are clear days in which they are to be given over to rest. It is because it is a demonstration that he is benevolent and that he is loving and that he is kind. And so you see this very clear prescription at the Feast of Unleavened Bread that no work shall be done on these days, Exodus 12, 16, and that all of the leaven must be kept out of the camp for the entirety of these seven days, Exodus 12, 18 through 19. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. And on the final day, at the very last day, Exodus 12, 17 says this, on the seventh day, you shall hold a holy assembly. And so what you have on the other side of the deliverance from the land of Egypt, what you have on the other side of the Passover lamb being slain and observed, you have a week, a glorious week, brothers and sisters, of gathering together with the, with, with, in a holy assembly, a week then of resting, and the conclusion of that week is a gathering again of the holy assembly. It says this in Exodus 12, 17, on the seventh day you shall hold a holy assembly. Exodus 13, 6, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day, there shall be a feast to the Lord. I find it so difficult as we speak of these festivals and feasts to think of them as a negative. Instead, it seems as a demonstration of God's kindness to them to provide rest, to provide a moment of gathering and rejoicing and delighting in the deliverance of their God. But it is interesting to me that in the midst of this, there are unique penalties. And I'm here to tell you, the unique penalties for not observing this appropriately are severe. Listen to the penalty of not observing the Feast of Unleavened Bread precisely. Exodus 12, 19. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from, from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. Now that language of being cut off from the land of Israel goes all the way back to Abraham's covenant that says, if you do not circumcise your children, then you will be cut off from Israel. And thus the promise is given to him. And so the question is, what does it mean to be cut off from Israel? There's really two ways that we can understand this. The first is this, that they be totally excommunicated. That is to say that they have no share in Israel and thus they have no share in the promises. That is to say the promised land that is on the horizon. The second way that we can understand this is through immediate execution. These are the two ways that we see this most normatively interpreted. I am convinced that what you are seeing here is a total excommunication, not an execution. But nonetheless, we see the severity of God. You will not let leaven 
leaven into the camp. And I need to ask a rather simple question here for a moment. What does God have against yeast? I mean, sincerely, you're thinking through the narrative here and you need to ask the question. I think it's a reasonable question to ask. Why is it that God would be so severe when it comes to having yeast or leaven inside the camp of Israel if it does not preach concerning something else? I mean, as we consider these feasts and festivals, we need to ask the question, why is it that he put into place such, such specific rules and regulations and why is it that leaven should not be named among them? So the feast is, has a very severe point. We'll get to the symbolics here in a moment. But the feast also has a primary purpose and the primary purpose is this, remembrance and proclamation. These are the two primary purposes of the feast. It is the primary purpose of the Passover feast. It's the primary purpose of this one. It's the primary purpose of the consecration of the firstborn. Exodus 13, three through five. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Exodus 13, 8 through 9, beautifully. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. So you see, the feast is laid out rather clearly. It's observed a multitude of times, uh, recorded, recordedly observed multitude of times inside of the Old Testament, which does lead us, I think, to the rather clear question is, what is the symbolics of this feast? Like, what really, why yeast? Why leaven? Why the seven days? Why the holy assembly? What's the purpose of each and every one of these? And I just want to lay out a couple, of, a couple of these to you, the symbolics of the feast first, the removal of the yeast. The removal of the yeast symbolizes the leaving behind of the pagan lies of the Egyptians. We have trouble thinking based upon location, but if you pay close attention to what's taking place here, he's not permitting them to take that which spreads abroad from the land of Egypt as he creates the new nation of Israel. Don't bring that with you. You leave that there. Do not bring their pagan ideas and concepts into the new nation that I have covenanted with, that I have redeemed, that I will be their God to. Do not bring those concepts in. And hear me, this is so important because the very first thing they do is make a golden calf. That is to say that they bring with him the pagan concepts of worship as God is making them into his nation. The reason that he tells them, do not bring the leaven, is symbolic of saying, do not bring the lies and false worship of the Egyptians, which I have already demonstrated are as of nothing. Do not bring those with you as you make your way into the promised land that I am giving you. As I have delivered you and saved you, do not bring with you your previous ideas of worship. Secondly, it not only symbolizes the leaving behind of pagan lies of the Egyptians, secondly, it symbolizes the leaving behind of slavery. That is to say, slavery to a former master. You are not bringing with you the concept or the ideas of being a slave to an Egyptian false god. Instead, you are coming in as the firstborn son of God, as, as, as Exodus 4 says, and I will be your God, you will be my people, and you will submit to me as the true and living God. Do not bring with you that former manner of slavery. Instead, you come into something new, something better. And we do recognize that the 
concepts here originally are quite clearly that you be delivered from slavery in Egypt, but these mature as we will find in the New Testament. Secondly, there is a requirement in the Feast of Unleavened Bread to actually eat unleavened bread. We often think about it just from the concept of purging, but God in the midst of this is actually providing them something superior. And as we'll find in the New Testament, the concept of unleavened bread is not bread that is filled with evil and malice, but is instead filled with sincerity and truth. That there is something superior, that God is not robbing them of bread, but he is providing them something superior. And as we make our way into the actual wilderness, you will find that God provides the better bread of manna that finds its culmination in Christ in John 6. The concept here is that he is saying, I am going to be your provision, that as the women would bake those those unleavened cakes, they would think, ah, we left the leaven in Egypt. And God says, praise be to God, you left the leaven in Egypt. You need it not. I will be your provision and I will provide for you something superior. And lastly, the week of rest, the holy assembly and the final feast, this shows forth the deliverance of God from their slavery to a wicked master. Pharaoh would not give them three days. If you pay attention to the narrative, the original ask from Moses to Pharaoh was give us three days. Give us three days to go into the wilderness to sacrifice to our God and we'll be back. And God at the institution of the nation says, I will gladly give you a week of rest and celebration and rejoicing. That no longer are you under bondage to a wicked master who desires nothing for you but your death. Instead, you have been brought out and the very first gift that he gives them is a week of rest and celebration and the enjoyment of God. Secondly, this shows forth the worship and joy of such a deliverance. Helpful, considering the Lord's table this morning from the perspective of a child. Consider this. You've made your way out of the land of Egypt. As you celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread for the very first time in the wilderness, what is your disposition Is it a burden to you that God has granted you a week of resting, telling you to cease from your labors, telling you to enjoy the bounty of the land, telling you to enjoy the assembly of the holy people of God, telling you to delight in the deliverance that God has brought to fruition for you? Brothers and sisters, I would appeal to you that the disposition of Israel as they observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread was not gloomish. Instead, it was celebratory. Our God has been able to deliver. Our God desires us to rest in him. Our God has provided for us a means and even this period of a week of rejoicing and celebrating all that he has done for us. So as we consider this feast, we must understand that the yeast preaches to us a freedom from something, a leaving behind of a former manner of life. He then brings us a new and better bread, something for us to enjoy. And then he tells us to go forth, to celebrate, to begin with a holy assembly, to conclude with a holy assembly, and that you be a people who feast and celebrate that which God has done for you in the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. Again, we cannot miss, brothers and sisters, that the institution, the beginning of unleavened bread is the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. There is no feast of unleavened bread without the lamb being slain. And as we see that lamb being slain, they are launched into a period of delight and worship of their true and living God. 
So that's the simple way that we walk through the actual Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that leads us to ask a rather simple question. What should we glean from this today? How should we understand this in light of the full context of all of redemptive history? How do we understand this in light of Jesus' statements and Paul's statements concerning leaven and unleavened bread? So what should we glean? First is this, brothers and sisters, we should glean the dangers and destructive nature of sin and false teaching. As we reach into the New Testament, it is quite clear that both Jesus and the Apostle Paul regularly use the concepts of leaven to convey that which is false or that which is evil. 1 Corinthians 5, 8 says this, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, and he clarifies what this old leaven is, the leaven of malice and evil. This is the way that the Apostle Paul thinks of and speaks of leaven. His understanding of putting away leaven is putting away malice and evil. He recognizes that the presupposition of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is that all of this must be done away with. There's something superior that has come. It must be cast out. Matthew 16, 11 through 12, the words of our Lord that we even read earlier, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That the Lord Jesus, he's meditating upon this and as he's conveying to his people to warn them of the error of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, another gospel records it as the leaven of Herod, that as you're considering this, he's saying, be warned of all of these false teachers. They are putting something into you that does not belong there that will corrupt the entirety of your person. He clarifies this in Luke 12, 1, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And so when the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul are speaking of leaven, they recognize it as that which is evil and corrupt. And so we should be warned, brothers and sisters, of the true nature and the true concepts of this leaven, this false teaching that would enter in to cause harm and disruption and the very evil sin in and of itself that corrupts everything. And we find that in Galatians 5, 7 through 9. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The severity of this, brothers and sisters, is to say, sin does not remain benign. It cannot remain benign. It is its very nature to corrupt absolutely everything. And the Lord Jesus throws in that very same concept of false teaching. False teaching does not remain benign. It corrupts anything and everything that it touches. Should we have a false gospel, brothers and sisters, I would tell you that you have no true salvation then. That this corrupting nature of sin and false teaching is the very thing that is being symbolized in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remove this from yourself. It cannot even be named among you. And then we must understand the true severity of this. Because we read through this narrative and the question is, well, okay, well, if I have to remove evil and malice and any false teaching, that is things that are not submissive to the word of God, then, then, then really where am I standing? Because the feast tells me quite clearly in Exodus 12, 15, on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your house. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Should we make our way into the New Testament and have the same understanding that if I'm looking at Exodus 12, 15, and if I'm taking that into account with the New Testament record, that if evil and malice be named among me, then I should be cut off from the people of God. If that's the concept, if leaven is meant to convey to us evil and false teaching, that which is contrary to his very nature and being, that if it be named among me, then I should be cut off 
from the house of Israel. And here is the beauty, if you will, as we note the severity. We must never undermine the severity of the clear teaching of Scripture. We say with absolute confidence that if leaven be in you, then you should be cut off from the people of God. That you should not be permitted to partake in the rest in the celebration. But then we look at 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And it says this, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. May I make a moment to simply argue? If I'm looking at myself, I know this, there is leaven in me. There's evil, there's malice. If you ask me to account the sins I have committed this week, I would fail. But I know for certain that there is a multitude. And so that leads me to ask the rather simple question, how is it that this text would tell me that you really are unleavened? And I would argue that it's based upon the reality that the Passover lamb that is mentioned that deters the wrath of God from you at the beginning of this feast is actually the very same lamb that will cleanse you in its entirety. Listen to what 1 John 1, 7 through 9 says. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess, that is to say, if we go on saying, no, 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 I'm certain of this, that there is leaven, there's evil, there's malice in me. I am fully aware of all of my trespass and iniquity. Forgive me, I'm not fully aware of the true extent of it, but I know that I am corrupted. I know that I am wicked. I know that there be sin in me. How is it that you look back at me and say, you're unleavened? It's because the lamb has been slain and the lamb that has been slain, that blood that was shed did not deter the wrath of God from you. It actually satisfied the wrath of God. And as it satisfied the wrath of God, it did not leave you in an unsanctified state. It declared you a saint. Paul is not mixing words when he says that you really are unleavened. He's making a doctrinal application based upon the blood of the Messiah. That when the blood of Christ covers you, saints, there is no leaven any longer. It purifies you. It cleanses you of sin. It is so unique to consider, saints, for just a moment, that men will spend eternity in the fires of hell and not one sin will be cleansed. But should you be plunged beneath the blood of Christ, all of your sins will be cleansed from you. That that which the fires of hell cannot do, the blood of Christ can do in but a moment should you come confessing that there be wicked and evil and malice in me. Lord, cleanse me that I might be white as snow. And he has certainly provided that in the lamb that was slain. And so we say with absolute confidence, saints, and hear me, we should say with absolute confidence, I know that there is malice and there is wickedness and there is evil in me, but I know that I am clean. I know that there is no leaven in me. I know that I have been purged. This is a recognition of a doctrine we call positional sanctification, that we stand justified. When Paul addresses the churches, he calls them saints. He's not a liar. He's recognizing the fact that they are holy, that they are pure, that they are set apart for the glory of God, that they are a people that are radiant and without blemish based not upon their own purity, but based upon the groom who washes them. 
And as the groom has washed them, he has made them clean. And that would lead us perhaps to ask the question in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, why then does it command us to cleanse out the old leaven? And I do want to recognize this because we are playing with two major, wonderful, glorious truths. And the first is this, that I am declared clean. That means that on the last day when God looks at me and someone is, and the question is asked, does anyone have a charge against him? The refrain will be, there is no charge that can be made. It's Christ who died. More than that, it's Christ who lives. That all of his sins have been paid for in full. The omniscient eye of God shall not find leaven in me. And yet there is a very clear commandment that we should actually purge the leaven out from us, which is the very first day, if you will, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so we recognize this before we go any further. First, you do not cleanse out leaven from you so that you will be delivered. This is an incredibly faulty understanding of the gospel. The gospel does not demand that you are clean. The gospel demands that you come to Jesus. That's the essence of it. It is not a statement that you must, in that very moment, repent of every single sin that you are conscious of. It's a recognition that I need the Lord Jesus Christ, that I know that his blood is sufficient. I know that that lamb is able to deliver and cleanse me. And then by his grace, he has freed me from sin's power that it might be cleansed from me that I might put it away. And so we say with absolute confidence, we do not cleanse out the old leaven so that we might be made positionally clean. We cleanse out the old leaven because we are positionally clean. We are recognizing the fact that God has declared us something and we want to be that which God has declared us. We want to strive for that holiness that he has made us. And so how do we see this? How do we do this? So first we recognize that though we be clean, there are remnants of the old man. And I imagine every single one of us could list the numerous ways that there are remnants of the old man. But praise be to God, that old man does not have power over us any longer. And thus we see a multiplicity of ways in which we have the remnants of the old man, but then the methodology by which we would purge out, that is to say, throw out the old leaven of the old man. Paul records this, I think, quite beautifully in Romans chapter 7. We see the remnants of our fleshly actions, Romans 7, 17 through 20. So now it is no longer I who do it, that is to say, the new creation, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do, I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. That is to say that Paul himself recognized the remnants of the old man. And not only did he recognize the remnants of the old man, he recognized the unique warfare that is birthed at conversion. Saints, you did not fight with your flesh before you were born again. The new birth births new life. And that new life, saints, is contrary to the death in which you lived. And that old man, that old rotting corpse of a man still has some life in him until we are laid in the ground or by God's grace until he returns. Secondly, not only do we see him, the old man in our fleshly actions, we also see it in our worldly thoughts. Romans 7, through 23, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I say in my member, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And to this I say, praise God that he deals with me based upon my justification and not my sanctification. 
Because he doesn't deal with me based upon how good I'm being at a particular moment. He doesn't deal with me based upon how alive that old man may be waging war against me. He deals with me based upon the fact that Christ has cleansed me. And then because of that, awe and wonder at the work of Christ to cleanse me from sin, I long to throw out that old man. So how then do we do that? First is this, and hear me, if you skip this step, you will fail 10 out of 10 times. If you desire that old man to be cast out, if you want to obey what 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8 says, if you want to cast out the old leaven, if you start anywhere else, you will utterly fail. You will utterly fail because you will do it based upon your own strength as opposed to dependent upon Christ who has delivered. You will never get anywhere fighting with your own might. Listen to the simple ways that we see this laid out. The conclusion of Romans 7 is this word coming out of Paul's mouth. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is to say the very first step of cleansing out the old leaven is first and foremost by delighting in and rejoicing in the deliverance of Christ and trusting that he will complete his work. You will not continue in sanctification by the flesh. You continue in sanctification by the spirit of God that gave you life in the first place. And you would be foolish to make your way anywhere else than other than the Lord Jesus Christ, meditating upon him and all that he has and will accomplish. Philippians 1.6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That is to say that he has delivered, he is actively delivering, and on the very last day, he will finally bring to fruition the complete deliverance, glorification, the old man dead altogether. Philippians 2, 12 through 13, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That beautiful command of work out your salvation with fear and trembling is undergirded, strengthened, made effective by the fact that it is God who works and wills within you for his good pleasure. So the very first thing that we must do is we aim to cleanse sin is we must meditate upon the finished work of Christ, delighting in that our affections must be stirred by his all sufficient ability to save and then to live in that glorious light. Secondly, by the renewal of your mind, Romans 12, two is quite clear. The conclusion, if you will, of the gospel narrative of Romans launches you into Romans chapter 12, telling you how then should we live? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That is to say that your infections must be ensnared to the sufficiency of Christ and his gospel. And secondly, your mind must be renewed according to the very word of God. We're too busy often trying to excuse our sin for us to cast it out. But should our mind be renewed by the very word of God, we will recognize it on the spot and say, ah, the all-sufficient Savior has rescued and redeemed me for this. I do not desire to submit to its yoke of slavery any longer. Instead, by his grace, we will cast it out, which launches us in to the third method. The third is this, that by the Holy Spirit who gives life to your mortal body, cleansing actually occurs. Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I do not expect my fleshly body to kill itself. I know for sure though that the spirit of God has mastery over him and that the spirit of God will actually cleanse and renovate the soul. 
And so as we're meditating upon this concept of I'm clean, but I need to cast out and to cleanse out the old leaven, I recognize that by my fleshly might, not a single sin will be cast out, but by the Spirit of God, a multiplicity will be cast out, cleansed, forth, by the offering of yourself unto humble obedience to Christ. Romans 6, 19. And we're slow to say these things, but brothers and sisters, the beauty of being delivered from the former master is that I can now offer my members to a new and better one. Listen to the words of Romans 6, 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Pause. Question. How completely did you offer yourself to sin? What did you leave reserved from sin's clutches and commands? I'll attest bare minimum to my own soul that there was nothing that was off limits to the rule and to the reign of sin. That when I speak of the doctrine of total depravity, that the entire fact, every faculty of my being was corrupted and offered up to sin, I unfortunately know it full well. And thus you have this wonderful pivot based upon the freedom that has come in Christ to free you from slavery to sin. By his death, burial, and resurrection, you have this wonderful phrase. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. That the way in which we process, the way in which we cleanse out is not a divorcing from the finished work of Christ. It's a meditation upon his justifying work. And the spirit of God then goes into the life of the Christian, grants life, illuminates the mind, renovates the soul so that the fact that we have been saved, the fact that we have been cleansed would then come all the more to fruition in the life of the Christian. Brothers and, brothers and sisters, I pray, sincerely pray, that I am not the same man in two years. And I do not pray that with a, with, a, with a carnal hope. I pray it with a genuine certainty. And the reason that I pray it with a genuine certainty is not because my flesh is strong, it's because the spirit is mighty. And he has promised that he will actively conform us to the image of his son. And so the concept of being cleansed and then cleansing is the most natural concept to the Christian. I do not go in on the first day of the feast to cast out any leaven so that I might be saved. I go in and cast out leaven because Christ has saved me, because he has delivered me because he has cleansed me. And in the midst of that, then and only then am I able to see that wicked leaven and say, away with it. When it once, it ruled me. Now, it is not just the leaven that is in view, brothers and sisters, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is also that we must glean that God is providing for his people a restful state to enjoy the festival with a better bread of sincerity and truth. Again, if all we walk away with from the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the leaven, then we've missed the entire picture of it. There is in it great provisions. The first is this, the feast actually demands rest. It demands it. It, it. it conveys to the people, there is nothing for you to do here. And throughout the entirety of each of these individuals' existences, those who were delivered from slavery in Egypt, every single day they were driven by a wicked master to work themselves to their death. And then you have the grace and care of God to bring them out, to grant them a rest, a restful state in which they could enjoy their God. Hebrews 4, 9 through 10 is where we find a grand culmination of this, that this feast demands rest and it demands rest because there is no work to be done. 
There's absolutely nothing to be done. Now we understand that as we go back to the land of, of, of Canaan, if we go back to the wilderness, then we recognize that this week will eventually reach an end and it will launch them into another day's labor. But we find in Hebrews 4, 9 through 10, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. We recognize that this feast in which we live, this feast in which the entirety of the Christian life is encapsulated, has for us no labors, simply rest. There is no work for us to do to be delivered. Now, if we could cast our eyes back just for a moment to Exodus 2 and 3, where we see Moses take up arms to deliver himself and perhaps deliver the Israelite people from slavery. Hear me, no man's hand is going to deliver. It is so with the, with the Exodus in of Israel, and it is so to this very day that not a single man's strength will deliver him from the true and far worse slavery of sin. But those who have been delivered recognize this. There is no work for me to be done on the other side of this. Instead, because the Passover lamb has been slain, because he has cleansed me, there is nothing more for me to do that I might be delivered. Instead, the call for the Christian is to simply enter into his rest, to find rest, to find peace, to find comfort, to find joy, knowing that there's nothing for me to do here anymore. Instead, I recognize that I must rest from my labors and in resting from my labors, cast full dependence upon the work of my great God. So the feast demands rest, and how could I work? The lamb has done all that is necessary to deliver. What then shall I eat? That which is all the more sweet and nourishing. Again, if you turn your attention back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it beautifully reminds us that it not only has the Passover lamb been slain, but at the very same time, another bread has been provided. That is to say, it is not the bread, that leavened bread of malice and evil. Instead, it is the bread of sincerity and truth. Now, it is probably no surprise to you that truth finds a rather simple fulfillment. Anytime the word truth is spoken of in the New Testament, it is either referring to the gospel of grace or Christ. It is very difficult to divorce those two because the reality is, as we have already heard spoken, Christ himself is the good news. He is the one who died. He is the one who was raised and he is the one who ever lives to mediate for us. This new and better bread of which we partake in, not unleavened bread, simply merely to satisfy and nourish the body. Instead, we partake of the superior bread. Listen to what it says in verse seven. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It is incredibly difficult to separate the concept of bread in the New Testament from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is so clear throughout its pages that even our Lord would say, I am the bread of life. That as we come to the table, he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. That the concept here, that as this table is set, he has offered you a bread of truth, of gospel, glorious truth. And he has set it before you, not in a mixed multitude, that is to say that I am not at a table in, the, in, in Canaan next to an Israelite who does not know the Lord. I am not looking at one and thinking, ah, he is partaking of this bread in hypocrisy. No, I'm looking at one who says he takes of this bread in sincerity because he has a sincere faith that is dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ exclusively. 
And not only do we see that this feast is setting for us a restful state of enjoying this festival, but we also see that this is a feast of rejoicing. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in a festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, that as you participate in this wonderful feast. That is to say, the festival of the Christian life. We come not with labor, but with rest. We come not with evil and malice. We come with sincerity and truth. And that as we come, we do not come with gloom and threatenings. Instead, we come with great confidence and rejoicing, knowing, brothers and sisters, that the threats of the unleavened bread, that if it be found in us, we will be cut off. We know that they will not fall to us. We shall not be cut off because Christ has cleansed us and cleansed us to the uttermost. And so when we eat, we eat rejoicing. We eat no that he has provided for us perfect redemption, and in the midst of perfect redemption, perfect rest. Now, the thing that strikes me about this feast is that it will end in Israel. That the first day they will come, they will have their holy assembly, they will cleanse out the unleavened bread. For those next six days, they will rejoice and rest. And on the last day, They will gather together again. They will eat the feast and they will have a holy assembly. And on the eighth day, they will go back to their labors. That the rest is concluded, the celebration is over and now we go back to the ordinary. But saints, hear me. Where is it that we celebrate our Passover lamb? I would remind you that the birth of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the thing that launches it into motion is a celebration upon the deliverance, a celebration upon the lamb slain. Saints, it is no different for us. The thing that launches us into our rest, the thing that launches us into a cleansing out of sin while dependent upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ is a celebration of the Passover lamb. It is a dependence and resting in him. And saints, as we have already seen in Hebrews 4, 9 through 10, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That Sabbath rest for the people of God is most certainly, first and foremost, the Lord Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, the Lord has given us a wonderful gift a gift in which we come together and we celebrate the deliverance that he has provided for us. We call it the Lord's day, where we come together and we celebrate the finished work of Christ. We come together, we eat and we drink together, we feast together, we rejoice in all that the lamb has accomplished for us. What then do we do with the remainder of our week? We go forth, we rest, we celebrate, we eat, we rejoice. But hear me, our feast concludes and another celebration of the Passover lamb. We do not live year to year. We live week to week. We live in this wonderful period that is laid out before the people of God as the feast of unleavened bread. But for us, brothers and sisters, it is a perpetual, endless feasting. It is a perpetual, endless life of resting in, being nourished by, and finding our comfort and our celebration in the promised lamb that was slain. We do not live year to year. At the conclusion of this feast, they would await the next Passover. They would await the next week of unleavened bread. But brothers and sisters, we do not await it. We perpetually live in this week of resting and rejoicing. Let's pray together.